From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Heading into next week's open of the legislative session, Democrats hold all three branches of Colorado state government, but they insist collaboration with Republicans will help define decision-making. Generally speaking, we agree on the end goal. We all want to make Colorado more affordable. We all want to have quality public schools. We want to have safe communities. We often will disagree on the best way to get there. We head to the state capitol to talk with Democratic leaders about priorities, including gun safety. Taking a public health approach can be a much more constructive and informative way in how to address what may be a a persistent challenge. We also talk wildfire mitigation in the face of climate change and the influence Governor Polis might have on decisions. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. While Republicans hoped to make inroads in last November's midterm elections, Democrats continue to hold all three branches of Colorado state government. But that's not to say theirs is a single unified voice. And heading into next week's start of the 2023 legislative session, there are signs of friction on how the party should wield its power. Joining us now from the state capitol to discuss the Democratic agenda is Julie McCluskey, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Hi, Speaker. Good afternoon. How are you? Great. Also with us is Senate President Steve Finberg. Hi, Senator Finberg. Hey, Chandra. Thanks for having us. Senator Finberg, I'd like to start with you. You were recently asked about your favorite memory from the 2022 session, and you said it came at the end with the Democrats and Republicans talking together as friends and colleagues. Probably not the image that most citizens envision, given the state of national politics. Is Colorado experiencing something different from what's happening in Washington? Well, yes, <laughs> to, to, to be simple about it. I mean, if there is one thing that Democrats and Republicans in the state legislature agree on, it's that we are not and we don't want to be Washington, D.C. Mm. And, you know, to be honest, that plays out every single day. We most of the legislation we pass receives Republican and Democratic votes, more than 90% of the bills, frankly. Um, So not all of them are headline-making bills, um, but what we do here at the legislature is we run a state, we govern. And I think that's why, as Democrats, being in charge the last few years, I think that's why voters rewarded us with continued majorities, is because they felt like we were governing in, a, in an adult way, in a responsible way, um, in, in a way that was responsive to the needs of voters. Now, would you expect a different answer in, say, a month? <laughs> well, maybe uh, at times tempers uh, get shorter as session goes on, but no, not really. I mean, I, mean I, I think at the end of the day, we do have disagreements on policy, no question. 
Generally speaking, we agree on the end goal. We all want to make Colorado more affordable. We all want to have quality public schools. We want to have safe communities. We often will disagree on the best way to get there. But with that said, even most of those bills on those big, hairy, tough topics, most of those turn out to have Republican and Democrats supporting those bills as well, and Republicans and Democrats sometimes opposing those bills. So it, neither party is a monolith. Um, but at the end of the day, on the biggest issues, on the budget, on some of the biggest challenges facing our state, we really do find common ground. And at the end of the day also, even if Republicans, being in the minority right now, aren't going to get their way, I think the speaker and I both believe it's important to have them at the table and to make sure they have a voice because they represent a large portion of our state. They might not be in the majority in the legislature, but those are real communities, real uh, people behind their elections, and they deserve a seat at the table as well. Representative McCluskey, you've served in the House since 2018 and have already wielded a pretty big hammer chairing the Joint Budget Committee in 2021. Did that experience help prepare you at all for what's awaiting you in your role as Speaker? I don't know that I've heard of the gavel being called a hammer, but I certainly uh, appreciate uh, the comparison. Um, I do think it's incredibly valuable to understand how our state agencies operate, uh, how we have invested our dollars to be able to inform the policymaking that will come in 2023. Um, you know, it's often said that a budget is a moral document. It is a reflection of the values that you believe in, uh, that you carry, and I think having worked on the Joint Budget Committee through probably the most turbulent three years in Colorado's history, I feel very prepared to understand where we need to go next as a state, uh, whether that's crafting policy, uh, making sure that we are paying attention to the investments we have already made uh, with state and federal dollars, and ensuring that the, uh, the fiscal structure of our state operations continues in a sustainable way, in a, a way that supports government operations as well as Colorado's economy. And I'm uh, truly excited uh, to have passed that hammer onto another uh, Joint Budget Committee chair and excited now to assume the role of Speaker for the House. Well, you mentioned excited, so I would imagine there are lots of emotions as you anticipate the start of the session. Why did you want to become Speaker? Uh, great question. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to reflect on what you have already discussed with our good president, uh, Fenberg, from the Senate. It really is my commitment to making sure that we move Colorado forward in a way that supports all Coloradans and helping all Coloradans achieve their own dreams. Um, I am incredibly fortunate to live in Colorado's high country. Working on the Western Slope, my experience with Democrats and Republicans alike has been uh, bipartisan, collaborative, and cooperative. We focus on the challenges, the problems facing our communities first, and we focus on our parties second. I think that has made uh, something 
a bit magical about uh, politics on the Western Slope, and some of my best allies in the legislation I've carried these past few years have been Republicans, and I, I hope that as speaker, I can bring that same value to focusing on the challenges, the problems, the hopes and dreams first, and working in a bipartisan, collaborative way as we move Colorado toward a brighter future. But you won the speakership after a bit of an internal scramble. One of the other contenders, Representative Adrian Benavides, resigned from the House after you won, and you appointed Chris Kennedy, a third contender for speaker, as speaker pro tempore, position that Benavides had held the previous two years. Have you talked with her since she resigned? Uh, let me start by saying that I have tremendous respect for Representative Benavides as well as Representative Kennedy. They have both served our state admirably and have been wonderful colleagues and allies to me in the work that we've completed these past few years. Um, I was very excited to have Representative Benavides uh, return um, and certainly uh, really had opened the door to allow her to express interest in any position that she wanted in the House. Um, she has certainly demonstrated that commitment and level of expertise to our body. Um, but I am very respectful that she has decided uh, to choose another path. And uh, she leaves us in a better place. And I wish her all the best on her future endeavors. Let's talk about guns. In the aftermath of the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs in November, there are questions not only about enforcement of the laws currently on the books, but what might be done this session to enhance them. After the Club Q shooting, Governor Polis told us the red flag gun laws need to be evangelized more. President Finberg, do you agree with that? And what steps are you prepared to take with regards to gun laws? Well, what I would say, first off, is we have to keep in mind and acknowledge the laws that we have in the books. And Colorado, for being a Western state, a traditionally uh, conservative, more maybe libertarian leaning state, we actually have made quite a bit of progress on uh, gun violence prevention policies over recent years. That includes many things, whether it's universal background checks or um, uh, making sure that for folks that are showing signs that potentially they could either inflict harm on themselves or others, that there's a process for removing that firearm from the situation. Uh, that there, there are a lot of pieces of the puzzle that we have already placed. That doesn't mean there isn't always gonna be more improvements. We, we clearly know that the gun violence problem, I would call it a crisis, uh, is still with us, very much so. And it takes many forms. It's, sometimes it's gonna be the tragic, horrible events like we saw at Club Q, uh, or in my backyard at King Supers. But it's also more often than not actually street violence or uh, self-inflicted because of suicide. And so we have to address this issue knowing that there are it's multifaceted. There are many aspects of the gun violence problem that's facing us right now. And we need to think about uh, sort of approaching it like the, the Swiss cheese model is how I refer to it. You, you have policy after policy. Not a single policy or a single slice is gonna solve the problem. But you hope that over time, you stack enough policies on each other and you have a system where there are fewer moments that fall through the holes. Uh, I, I think that's what we need to do, build upon what we have and probably add more policies to the mix to make sure we have safer communities. One has to be 
improving the red flag or ERPO law. Um, I think the governor agrees with that. I think most uh, of the Democratic legislature agrees with that. And I think most of law enforcement probably agrees. Uh, this was a controversial issue at the time when it passed. I, I think I can say definitively it has saved lives, but it can be better. We can expand who is allowed to use an ERPO and file uh, something in court. Um, we can educate family members and community members more about the process and that it's not something that you have to be afraid of, but you can embrace it in a way to save the lives of people close to you. Um, we need to do more work on it, but I think that's doable, and I, I fully suspect there will, will be a bill this year to do that. We're also looking at other areas. Um, ERPO isn't going to be appropriate or isn't going to solve every problem. Um, we are also now entertaining pretty much every other policy that, that we could think of and vetting them to, to consider uh, what would save the most lives. At the end of the day, we are going to prioritize policies that are not going to make headlines or we're not going to prioritize something because uh, another state did it or uh, a certain activist group told us to do it. We're going to do the policies that are going to save lives. And that's how we're going to focus it. That's the rubric we will use. Um, and I suspect that we will be passing several laws this year uh, to hopefully improve safety in our communities. Are there any specific steps you are looking at in regards to this? Well, improving the ERPO law, I think, is number one priority. Um, it, it's, a, it's a law that is proven to work. It could work better. We've even seen that the Congress, of all things, has actually said that they think this is an effective policy and they can provide resources to help us make it more effective. Um, so that's an area that we're going to prioritize. I also think we need to look at um, potentially raising the age uh, for purchasing certain types of firearms. Right now, I think the policy doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, anybody that's above 18 can purchase uh, an assault weapon, um, but can't purchase a pistol. Um, I, I think we need to just think about what are the causes of uh, gun violence, get at the root causes, but also address um, to make sure we're intervening and stopping the violence that's happening right now. Speaker McCluskey, the legislature has passed a red flag law, which, as you know, is designed to take weapons away from people who are considered dangerous. And we also know that the Office of Gun Violence Prevention, which is part of the state's Department of Public Health and Environment, was started in June of 2021 with the mandate to, quote, coordinate and promote effective strategies to reduce gun violence, end quote. Do you see it as realistic that efforts by that office could help prevent the next mass shooting in Colorado? I truly do believe that what we see, whether we're talking gun violence or other forms of violence, when you see examples escalate, when you see it occurring more frequently in your communities, taking a public health approach can be a much more constructive and informative way in how to address what may be a, a persistent challenge. So yes, I am really hopeful that that office will be able to better inform lawmakers, our communities, the, the greater public, on what the next best steps would be to ensure that we reduce gun violence, that we promote safety in our communities, and that we are taking care of people um, when they are in these violent situations, if they are, are victims of, of, say, gun violence. And I'm hoping that this office has the opportunity to better inform us and better inform policy. President Finberg, another area of ongoing concern is wildfires. We had Congressman Joe Nagoose on the show recently, and he spoke about 
creating a federal agency to help homeowners ensure that they receive enough insurance to cover losses brought by the blazes, like the 2021 Marshall Fire. The Colorado Sun has also reported that perhaps the state legislature is preparing to introduce a bill that would effectively accomplish the same thing. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think clearly insurance is going to continue to be a a bigger and bigger issue for homeowners that live not only in the wildland urban interface, the WUI is what we call it, but also, like we saw in the Marshall Fire, in areas that aren't traditionally considered high risk. So this is going to become a bigger issue. We are already hearing about homeowners that can't get insurance policies, or if they can get it, it's, it's essentially not attainable. Mm. Um, so we are looking at that. We are looking at a policy that potentially could provide sort of a, an insurer of last resort. It's not going to be uh, a direct competitor, right, because this is the last resort. This is a policy that if you can't get it elsewhere or it doesn't make sense to go elsewhere, that it could be available to you as a homeowner. It's important that people have insurance. It's important also that we, we address the root causes and fully fund mitigation efforts, um, which homeowners can play a very important role in. Um, but yes, I, I think it's an appropriate thing for the state to look at. Uh, obviously, whatever we do, we'll do with the, the context of what the, is happening at the federal level and making sure that we're not recreating the wheel, but collaborating with them so that it's efficient and effective. Representative McCluskey, your thoughts on the same issue, wildfires? Uh, first of all, I, uh, I live in an area where wildfire uh, is so very um, real. I think since the Buffalo Mountain Fire, the Peak 2 Fire, the Ptarmigan Fire in Summit County, just over these past five years, it has is, it is really become clear that wildfires are a part of our everyday. Um, I was driving through Grand County recently and had an opportunity to see yet again some of the devastation from the East Troublesome Fire. As we realize and recognize that wildfire is a part of Colorado's future, insurance is a part of helping every property owner protect their property. I think in addition to that, we have to think as proactively as possible about protecting our communities that for so long have uh, interfaced with our state and national forests and in beautiful settings, you know, it's why people move to Colorado so they can uh, enjoy the great uh, Rocky Mountains and the, and the forested areas. Uh, but to President Fenberg's point, um, a wildfire in the Marshall Fire, which certainly a, a great tragedy in this state, has really brought home how very real wildfire is for all of us and that we have to do as much as we can to be prepared. Insurance for property owners, thinking differently about how we're building, being prepared by investing in wildfire mitigation prevention and then being ready with wildfire response, suppression, and recovery. Um, it is certainly uh, a priority for us as a body, and I think uh, our partnership with Congressman Neguse and our entire congressional delegation is critical in helping to drive the resources where we need them to protect um, our entire state. Pose this question to both of you. Um, where do you envision money coming from, and what ideas do you have in terms of wildfire mitigation? Uh, over the last several years, I think the state has taken advantage 
of the federal recovery dollars that we have received, uh, and in light of some of our the impacts of these recent fires, we have been able to invest in Colorado's water plan. We've invested in wildfire mitigation projects, both at the homeowner level and in a broader scope in wildland urban interface areas. We've been able to provide dollars to watershed recovery. Um, really pleased that just two years ago, we were able to front load some dollar, dollars that leveraged federal aid in helping to respond to the Cameron and East Troublesome uh, fire areas and help us improve those watersheds, make sure that our waterways were not contaminated by the remnants of the wildfire, by the ash. And I think that as we look forward, it's really, for Colorado, it will continue to be a prioritization through our budget process. As I said earlier, our budget is a moral document, a reflection of our values. I think this legislature recognizes the threat of wildfires and we will continue to make strong investments where we can to ensure that all Coloradans are safe. President Finberg, you wanna to add to that? I think the speaker is right. It's just a matter of prioritizing the investments. And, and I would say, when it comes to wildfire prevention and response, it is an investment, right? Uh, we will pay for this one way or another, unfortunately. And we know that because of the climate crisis, we're gonna have more megafires. That's gonna become more and more the norm um, because that's the trend that we've already seen it. So the investments we make on mitigation um, will pay dividends. We have seen that areas that had big mitigation investments fared better when they were in the middle of uh, a wildfire. That, that happened in, in, in my district, in the, the Calwood fire. We can see the areas that were treated and the areas that were not in the impact. So if we love Colorado, if we want Colorado to stay Colorado, we have to make these investments or it will change, uh, unfortunately, very rapidly. We also need to invest in response and, and there's sometimes a conflict there between uh, mitigation and prevention versus response. But the response investments also uh, will pay dividends. For instance, if we are spending every year, we are spending lots of money on leasing aircrafts, it could make sense to buy more aircrafts because you're paying less over time and uh, it can be more of a resource for the state. So we are gonna look at mitigation, um, response, we're gonna look at prevention, uh, and, and all of those investments, as the speaker said, uh, really just have to be prioritized. And we do have less funding this year, uh, we, we know that, um, but it still has to be a priority for our state moving forward. I think it's fair to say that Governor Jared Polis has taken an active role in shaping legislation. Senator Finberg, you've interacted with him previously as Senate President. What advice do you have for Speaker McCluskey with regards to working with the governor? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, look, the, the work that we've done with the governor has been really rewarding. We, we have gotten so much done because of his leadership. Sometimes within this building, maybe there are conflicts or we fight over who gets credit or you know things that are at the end of the day are kind of silly and petty. But... For average Coloradan, all that matters is that we deliver on the promises and we deliver results. And that's something that I really respect for about the governor is he is laser focused on delivering on uh, what he told voters he would deliver on, on the campaign trail. And so I think 
really, the, the advice I would have is um, the more conversations, the better. As you said, Chandra, he has taken an active role. He is, in some ways, a legislator himself by, uh, by background. And I think the more you can get into the weeds and nerd out with him on policy, the more he respects it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that's good, right? Because um, we have big majorities, and we, we have the ability to pass most pieces of legislation that we want to pass. We need to make sure that the right policies for the future of, of the state, and I think the more we can get into the details and how it will impact our communities all over the state, the better. And I know the governor cares about that as well. So I think the more uh, you meet the governor where he's at and, and he'll respond in kind, and in a lot of ways that means getting into the details. That brings me to another thought. Representative McCluskey, how often have you talked with the governor since becoming speaker? And what do you envision your relationship will be like? I, first of all, I really want to commend the governor because he takes great pride in building relationships with all of the legislators. He and I have talked uh, numerous times before I was selected as speaker and certainly when I was chair of the Joint Budget Committee. He is, uh, to his credit, hands-on with the ideas of policy, uh, maybe more importantly, what the priorities are for the people of this state. And I have truly enjoyed uh, my conversations with the governor. We haven't always agreed. I think, uh, I think that's an important point, that while we may still share the mantle of Democrat, uh, we can come to the table and talk about issues from different point of views. And uh, just like any other uh, advocacy group or partner that is helping us build the right policy for Colorado, the governor certainly plays a, a pivotal part of that process. Um, but his voice, like those of my colleagues, is one that uh, weighs into the final shape and creation of good policy for this state. I value my relationship with Governor Polis. I, uh, I look back to my very first session when I carried the Colorado Reinsurance Program Bill. And that bill struggled. We spent a lot of time, uh, my colleagues and I, working with hospitals and our commissioner of insurance and certainly the governor in trying to bring forward a policy that would help reduce uh, health insurance premium costs for people in this state. We were successful in doing that. And uh, given all the people who had a role in that policy, particularly the governor, I'm really proud that it came together in such a, a strong and uh, meaningful way for the people of this state. And I trust that moving forward, the governor and I uh, will continue to work well together, uh, deliver on the, the hopes and dreams of the people of our state, uh, and I trust that President Fenberg will continue to guide me in how to work closely with the governor in this new role. Speaking of managing relationships, as we mentioned, Democrats are solidly in control of the legislature with a 46-19 split in the House and 23-12 in the Senate. But there seems to be a number of more progressive policymakers among the newcomers. Speaker McCluskey, What's your message to the progressive members of your party who are ready to make their presence known right away? I am delighted and thrilled to welcome those voices along with our more moderate voices. I think for the first time in the House, we are seeing 
uh, an incredible, diverse representation of the communities that exist all across this state. And I'm excited to hear fresh new ideas from our first year legislators that'll soon be um, experiencing their very first session and crafting their very first uh, bills and, and policies. And I'm excited to see that diversity of opinion, perspective, that diversity of lived experience um, play out in a very constructive and productive way for our state. I think it's only when we recognize uh, those diverse voices that we're able to, to craft policy that is uh, truly um, a reflection of people's uh, values and hopes. And I, I will say that uh, uh, President Fenberg reflected um, on our our call now, our responsibility to represent everyone in this state. I think as members of the body, we have a responsibility to represent those who voted for us and those who did not. And I will bring that message to my colleagues as we move forward in this session because ultimately we want to um, really do our job in moving Colorado forward in the right way. Perfect segue. President Finberg, you've talked about the idea that while Democrats control the House and Senate, there are still many Republicans and Republican-leaning voters across the state. How do you go about walking that fine line between wielding your power and being responsive to differing voices? I think so much of it comes down to relationships and treating people with respect. Again, I think Democrats are going to get their way more than Republicans are this year, if I had to guess. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we will do it in a way that runs over their ideas. Uh, there, I, I genuinely believe better policy results when everybody's at the table. And that's not just a talking point. I, I think all of us have the ability to have blinders on and just be convinced that we are right. And we may be right, but there might be some tweaks or some different changes that could happen uh, to make it more effective, frankly. And I think as progressives, as Democrats, if we have these big majorities and we feel that we have a mandate, I think that we also have a responsibility to deliver on that mandate in a way that's gonna be durable. And I think the more we can bring Republicans to the table to hear them out, to have them part of conversations, uh, the more likely those policies, when we pass them, will stay on the books for a long time. If we do this in purely a partisan manner, I think eventually the pendulum will turn and they'll get rid of those bills and those laws. And I think uh, for the values that I have, I actually think it's more responsible to bring everyone along and to have that conversation, treat people with respect, um, and get those policies across the finish line in a way that they will last for a long time. Speaker McCluskey, your background is in education, which has been a legislative priority in recent years, but some theorize that priority may change in the near future when some of the ability to spend, as we just talked about, may be limited by a slowdown in revenue or possible recession. Does the state need a new major revenue source? And what might you be looking at to accomplish that? I am strongly committed to fully funding public education in this state. 
and we currently are not. The budget stabilization factor has taken money away from our public schools for more than a decade, and it is time that we erase the budget stabilization factor. Having said that, we are not going to get there with the limitations we have under the current Tabor cap. My hope is, in this year and next, that we will continue our conversations around fiscal reform. We know that as a state, we are continuing to see an influx. Um, the population in our state is growing. We are experiencing new challenges, new expectations around government services, education certainly being uh, a primary uh, government service in that mix. And I really do believe that we can continue to have conversations with our constituents and our voters and help craft a responsible amount of fiscal reform that addresses the needs of our public schools as well as our communities. Um, you may be aware, Chandra, that we passed over the last two years property tax relief. In light of the Gallagher repeal, that voters approved just two years ago. That relief truly does uh, help homeowners and businesses in this inflationary and, and you know, extraordinary time as we all get back on our feet and return to normal. But looking forward, I think the repeal of Gallagher was a call for us to now sit down and figure out a better approach on property tax for this state as well as fiscal reforms. So watch for that. I, I think in the months ahead we'll be having those conversations early to say what that shape that policy might take, but I think the time is now and I'm, I'm delighted to, to pursue it as we, um, uh, as we continue our good work here. Senator, final thoughts on the same topic? I think we clearly have made a lot of progress on uh, education funding. Um, but we need to, as the speaker said, take a long, hard look at what the future holds. We are, frankly, underfunding our children right now and our public school systems and teachers and families. We need to think about what is the, the sustainable fiscal path for Colorado. Um, I don't think that means higher taxes necessarily. I think it means a different approach and, and removing some of the pieces uh, of our fiscal uh, um, landscape that don't make a lot of sense anymore. And so that's something that we'll be looking at uh, long and hard. Thank you both for your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for the conversation. Steve Finberg of Boulder is the president of the Colorado Senate. Julie McCluskey from Dillon is the speaker of the House of Representatives. We met at the state capitol on Tuesday to discuss the upcoming legislative session, which begins Monday. That's when we'll also hear my interview with the state's Republican legislative leadership. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. There's a role for everyone at Colorado Public Radio. You're already a listener. You may even be a member. Have you ever wondered about working at CPR? A nonprofit with a history that starts in 1970, CPR's news and music radio signals today reach over 90% of Colorado's population, while podcasts and online content reach people across the nation. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make this happen, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. Learn more at cpr.org/careers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Shonda Thomas Whitfield. Colorado's mountain residents have long feared wildfires, 
But for many people living on the front range, that risk was unimaginable, at least until the Marshall Fire ignited a year ago and incinerated entire neighborhoods. As CPR's Sam Brash reports, the disaster has sparked new efforts to study and to prevent wildfires in suburban grasslands. To reduce the risk of another Marshall Fire, CU Boulder ecologist Catherine Sutting says it's important to start with something obvious. Turns out grasslands, they're not forests. We've ignored grasslands mostly in terms of fire risks. We've concentrated a lot about forests. Sutting explains all this at her hilltop research site outside Boulder. It looks out over one of the first places to burn in the Marshall Fire. The blaze got rolling in prairies local governments protect as open space. Then hurricane-force winds sent it rocketing into communities, where it overwhelmed firefighters and burned more than a thousand homes. You almost can't tell now where the burn occurred because the grasslands recover um, so quickly. That all makes for a tough land management challenge. How do you reduce wildfire fuel when it grows back in a few weeks or months? And that problem, it reaches far beyond Boulder County. The Colorado State Forest Service estimates more than half of Colorado residents live in the wildfire danger zone. That's because many front-range communities border grasslands, landscapes that evolved to burn, but Sutting says are only becoming more flammable due to climate change. It is really dry out here, and the weather patterns are that it is getting drier in the late summer and then this period. So it's opening up this really high window of risk. Setting is researching tools that might help protect homes. We'll walk through a few of them in this story, but some communities aren't waiting for her results. They've already called in some four-legged reinforcements. So we have four goats, and then we have a cow and a calf. This is Emily Gallagher with Grandma Grass and Livestock. The city of Louisville hired the company to graze one of its open spaces, just feet from a suburban neighborhood. One of the main goals is fire mitigation. So when it comes to that, like kindling or stuff on the ground, the goats do a really great job on that. Many Boulder County communities already graze rural grasslands to reduce fire risk. The animals help eat dried thatch and invasive grasses. This demonstration is meant to show that could also work in an urban setting if people guide the animals to specific areas. These guys were a little bit more hands-on and we would have them within fencing on a daily basis and they would move on a daily basis. The CU Boulder team plans to investigate if GPS collars could make the job easier by corralling animals with virtual fences. If so, it might help provide an alternative to a more mechanical option, lawnmowers. Again, mowing is just not the fix for everything. This is Therese Glowacki, the director of Boulder County Parks and Open Space. Her department takes requests to mow flammable plants near homes, something it's tried to do more of since the Marshall Fire. But she oversees a 340-mile border between developed areas and open space. Mowing all of that, it'd just be too expensive. Especially if you would have to mow it three or maybe four times in a year, we would never have the staff or resources. There is, however, one fire mitigation technique Boulder County is already throwing itself into. That's helping residents harden their homes. I'm Craig. Hi, Craig. Oh, you're Craig. That Craig. Craig. That Craig. (laughs) Craig Jones works with an organization called Wildfire Partners. On a recent afternoon, he met John Wilkins at his home, which nearly burnt down. We had uh, nine homes uh, standing here, and mine was the only one that was left standing. He asked for help because he doesn't want his home to burn down next time. And it doesn't take Jones long to find potential problems. 
the lattice fence. Yeah. Get rid of that. Get yeah. rid of that. It, it can act like a fuse. Uh, there's many documented examples of fences catching a house on fire. Mm. This program was previously limited to people living in mountain areas. Boulder County residents voted to expand it in the wake of the Marshall Fire. County Commissioner Matt Jones pushed for the $22 million wildfire package, and he hopes other front-range communities pay attention to the effort. Because the next disastrous grass fire... It's going to come to you. It's just a matter of time. Get people knowing what they can do to empower themselves to work around their homes and get started. Jones doesn't want to see any other communities caught off guard, thinking wildfires are only something that happens up there in the mountains, outside of cities and suburbs. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. A year after the Marshall Fire, Mary Hagler of Superior is just now rebuilding. We came across a groundbreaking celebration for her new home. The process is ongoing. It's not over. I'm still working with insurance. I've signed a construction contract. I have an architect builder. I have a design. My building permit is almost approved or issued, and um, so we're celebrating. And I have some wonderful friends, and each and every one of them have helped me out. Here, wait, let me get some more coffee. We had the golden shovel, and everybody in the group got to throw some dirt. My name is Stephen Walsh, and I'm the architect for Mary Hagler. About February, Mary called me asking if uh, we could help her with her rebuild, and she didn't mention that her home had burned down. Uh, we were just terribly busy, and I wasn't able to to take on any more work. Then when she mentioned that uh, she had lost her home in the Marshall Mesa fire, I checked with my team, and, and we decided that we've got to clear the decks and help these folks out. You know, I've lived in this area for uh, four or five decades, and um, this is really the first chance I've had to give back in, in such a meaningful way directly with somebody who suffered a loss. In the course of the 10 months or so that we've been working together to get to this point where we're about to uh, start construction, my team has grown close with Mary, and it's become a real labor of love. To be able to take a day and just look back on what we've done in the past year, and uh, see Mary's friends come to support her, and you know to really see a sign of hope for her for the first time in a year since she lost her home. I'm Bob McCool. My wife and I have lived in Superior since '97. Well, we know Mary. She's a neighbor of ours. People don't turn over or hadn't turned over in this neighborhood very much. The houses never went up for sale, and nobody ever moved because it was just a great little place to be. And the permitting process, trying to figure out everything you need to do, has been really, really challenging. There were like probably, I don't know, five, six, seven things that were all five to ten thousand dollars each. You know, that you just had to get done because you're on a bare lot. You know, there's a lot of things that we had to learn about. It's not necessarily anything that I would want to learn about it unless I'm in this situation. Debris removal, knowing your insurance policy over and over, and, you know, and looking at your summary of loss that's over 100 pages. A number of people are having problems with insurance. You know, we were paid out immediately. They were like, yeah, it's going to cost you more to rebuild than you're insured for, so here, here, have your money. And other people are having to get bids and then wait. You know, you can see there's other homes going up, but this is the first rebuild of a neighbor bringing their house back up. I'm just glad things are getting started. I, I, yeah, I am hopeful now that this has happened. So, so Yes, definitely, and a cookie, too. Builders expect to finish Mary's new home before the end of this year. What you heard is thanks to CPR's Miguel Otarola. 
Recovering from a big health setback can take many forms. A Colorado woman found one activity in particular helped. CPR health reporter John Daly explains. In March of 2017, things were going well for Shannon King. The Brighton resident was then 51 and busy working as a paralegal. It was the best job I ever had, you know. Then her body started doing strange things, as her husband Mark explains. And she'd like hold a cup and then her cup would slowly tip over and stuff. That was the first signs. Those were the first signs of a life-changing event, a stroke. She never went back to that job she loved. Shannon struggled with her speech and had weakness on her right side. Yeah, I was just crying all the time. Then King met with a speech therapist who asked her and Mark, Have you tried singing with her? And Mark's like, no. And he said, just sing Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. And I belted that out. It's crazy. I couldn't even speak. It's easier for you to sing. Yes, for sure. That was the start of a long rehabilitative journey helped along by song, says Mark. Yeah, so we started off with kind of like the one word, you know, kind of sentences. At first, it was just yes and no answers. And then once we started singing and stuff, then the vocabulary started kind of coming back. Fast forward to 2022. In front of an audience in a retirement home in Littleton, Shannon King is belting out the Beatles. She's now a member of a group called the Rocky Mountain Aphasia Chorale, the choir for stroke survivors and supporters. Aphasia, what does that mean? Aphasia is a language disorder. That's Sarah Thompson. She's CEO of a nonprofit called Rehabilitative Rhythms. And there are many different types of aphasia. The actor Bruce Willis was diagnosed with it earlier this year. It can affect writing, it can affect reading. Thompson's group helps survivors of stroke and brain injury and runs the choir with something called non-fluent aphasia. People, typically when they have a stroke on the left side of the brain, struggle to get words out, Thompson says. But melody is processed in the right side of the brain and gives us a door in to accessing words through singing. So many of them, like Shannon King and other choir members, can only speak one or two words after their stroke, but immediately can sing a song with a hundred words in it. It's quite a remarkable difference. Rebecca Stewart is a board-certified music therapist and former director of the choir. She says music is uniquely processed and perceived in our brains. Because of that, it can provide a detour to help stroke survivors struggling to communicate. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) But, she says, insurance often doesn't cover music therapy, and many may not be able to find a provider near where they live. Funding is a huge barrier. This type of group is rare. The Rocky Mountain Aphasia Chorale is one of only five aphasia choirs in the country. Shannon King's husband, Mark, says it's made a difference for Shannon, both cognitively and emotionally. It was kind of life-changing for us. You know, we, we didn't know what to expect. This all kind of hit us. This was like one of the bright spots. 
was music. We didn't know you could sing. How do you feel when you're singing? I feel awesome when I sing. I don't sing well, but when I sing, I think I sound awesome. <laughs> Shannon King wears a t-shirt that she says sums things up nicely. When words fail, music speaks. I'm John Daly, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to these voices. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Sandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.